And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He was elected in the wake of Watergate, an anti-war candidate and reformer who went on to become one of the longest-serving members of Congress, Tom Harkin of Iowa, author of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and a host of other major pieces of legislation over the course of that time, and a stalwart leader of the progressive uh, caucus in the Congress and the Senate uh, during his 40 years in office, sat down to talk about his career and about the election we're in the midst of right now. Tom Harkin, you uh, spent 40 years in Congress, uh, but you started in a very different place. Uh, When you were growing up in Cumming, Iowa, um, did it occur to you that you'd spend most of your lifetime in Congress and that you serve in public office? Well, David, first of all, thanks for having me here at the Institute. It's been wonderful. Uh, (laughs) You know, when I was a kid growing up... um, um, my most vivid memories are all my cousins coming home from World War II. They were older, older than I was, and the Korean War. And uh, and um, growing up, I always thought I'd just be in the military, and all I ever wanted to do was fly airplanes. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly airplanes. I never, I never got into an airplane until I was 19 years old. Huh. <laughs> but that's all I wanted to do. And well, I got to do it, but that was that's all I thought about when I was a kid. I I never knew a politician, never saw one. No, I and you, you, your situation was fairly modest back then. Very modest. I mean, very yeah, very modest. I mean, we had we had um, yeah. My dad was a coal miner most of his life. Had a sixth grade education. My mother was an immigrant. Didn't have had some education. Um, but no, we grew up, uh, we, my folks raised six, six of you, right? My folks raised six kids in a two bedroom house that had less than a thousand square feet. Six kids. I don't know how the hell they did Excuse me. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a podcast. So you and your mom passed away when you were quite young. My mother passed away when I was just, just turning 10. And, uh, and my dad was really old. See, my dad didn't get married until he was, uh, uh, see, I don't let's see how old. My dad was 54 when I was born. So he got married late, late in life. So he was 54. So by the time when my mother died, and she was, she was uh, 44. She was 44 when I was born. So I got in just under the wire, as you can imagine. So when she died, my dad was already 64, almost 65, in very bad health. He had that black lung disease, and he'd been banged up a lot in his life. Plus, he drank a lot and he smoked a lot, and uh, so I was sent to Wyoming to live with one of my sisters. I so I, taken from that small town, I'd never been anywhere, and sent by myself on a train uh, to Rock Springs, Wyoming, to live with my sister. That was tough. That was tough. What What are all these experiences? How did they shape you later in life as a as a politician? Well, I haven't spent a lot of time 
thinking about that, David. It's just not something I've dwelled on. But you were but, but, you you were a very very progressive voice in uh, in the Senate. You 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 well, landed on that side of the the fight all the time. Presumably, it was shaped by. Well, I think that's right. I mean, uh, well, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, uh, my father worked all his life, but he he was able to work a few years during the war years uh, to pay into Social Security. So imagine that. I'm 10 years old, almost 10, and, and my father's already just starting to draw Social Security. And he had no money. He had no savings. He had nothing, nothing, zero. And I remember that and how much that meant. Um, but I remember more distinctly than anything, I was, I was in the military and I came home and uh, my father got sick all the time. That 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 lung mm. stuff. Every winter he'd come down pneumonia. We'd drive him to the hospital in Des Moines, Mercy Hospital, Catholic Hospital. Nuns would take care of him. They never billed us, you know, just charity work. But um, and he always felt bad about that. We, you know, we didn't much care about that either. But we had to do it. So I remember David coming home from the military. And it's 1965, and um, I was just getting ready to go overseas. And I came home, and my dad showed me something. He showed it. He was so proud. He had his Medicare card that now he could go get health care and not have to pay for it. I mean, that was a big deal, and that was done by the Democrats. That was done by Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, I know. I should say that when I was in the White House and we were planning the 2012 convention, I took quite a few calls from you, I remember, about making sure that we properly honored uh, Lyndon Johnson. That's right. And uh, which which was to me kind of interesting because you are identified sort of with the left of the party, Right. And Lyndon Johnson fell into disrepute with the left of the party because of Vietnam. But you 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 honor Lyndon Johnson. I think Lyndon Johnson I would you know, when you rank presidents, of course you'd rank Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, F D R and I'd put Lyndon Johnson right there. Um uh, Okay, did I disagree with his war force? I, I disagreed with the war in Vietnam. I lost too many of my friends there. And um no, so, but beyond that, beyond that, my gosh, what he did for this country in making our society more fair and more just. You know, I always say I, I make a pilgrimage every once in a while to the LBJ Library. Yeah, it's a great place. It is wonderful. And if you go back, if you remember, if you go in there and you walk down around, there's this room called the Great Society. And you start reading all those little plaques there. I mean, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the Higher Education Act, of course, Medicare, Civil Rights, uh, uh, Pell Grants. uh, It it just goes on and on and on. You think, and when I hear people say that we got to repeal or or, or do repeal the Great Society, I say, well, which one of those you want to repeal? Go out there and campaign on that one. You know, Jeff Greenfield, uh, the journalist who's been here at the IOP with us uh, this year along with you, uh, was... uh, in conversation with me here the other day, and he worked for Bobby Kennedy. And uh, he talked about how Bobby Kennedy had concerns about um, the sort of the, 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 the growing welfare state that, that people 
that rather than preparing people for jobs and preparing people to take command of their own lives, that we were running the risk of creating dependency. Uh, now we have 50 years of experience. Uh, Jeff, any, any misgivings, any second thoughts, any sense that maybe we should do this a different way uh, in terms of how we deal with poverty and how we help lift people out of it? But that was the Great Society. That was not a welfare state type thing. And keep in mind, Robert Kennedy was a very conservative person in many, many ways. Plus, that was a personality thing with Lyndon Johnson and all that kind of stuff. But no, I mean, if you look at the Great Society and what it did, that's where we got our job training programs. That's where we got all of the things in that enable people, if they lose a job, to get better education, uh, to, to have that kind of job retraining. It's, it's not a welfare state. That, that's, 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 that's just that's something that the conservatives have pandered off and on, onto the American people. Uh, no, uh, if, if there was one failure of the, of, the, of the great society, it's what my good friend and mentor, uh, John Culver, used to say. We never funded it enough. We just never did. We just dropped the ball on the funding of the great society. But even with that, we persevered. I mean, Pell Grants, Pell Grants enable poor kids to go to college. That creates a welfare state. You were part of expanding them with uh, President Obama. In, As uh, we did. We expanded them. We sure did. Um, you mentioned that you were in the service. You were in the Navy. You, were, you finally got into an airplane. <laughs> finally. Uh, and you were flying uh, in Asia uh, during the Vietnam War period. And you weren't you were in a sign of, you you flew into vietnam sometimes but no. and you lost a lot of friends did you over the course of your service uh, did you turn on the war was was it your did you leave the military i think you left in what 69 or something uh, november of 67 67 by that time had you a jaundiced view of the war in vietnam i had yeah i had when I first went in the Navy, of course, I became a fighter pilot and all that, and you're just gung-ho and everything. But I was, then I was stationed in Guantanamo, Cuba, of all places, for a year I, and a half. I've heard of that place. You've heard of that place. And so I was stationed there, and Castro would shut the water off and all that kind of stuff. But, um, um, and then, um, but then I, I started reading. I, you know who first turned my mind on that was Bernard Fall, was a French Frenchman, wrote a book. He called it... He had two books. One was The Two Vietnams, and the other one was called Street Without Joy. I read those, and I thought, hmm, it's interesting. I never never had that view of it. And then when I was sent overseas, I began to see more and more of my fellow pilots who were actually flying in Vietnam. I wasn't. And, um, and uh, what they were going through, and then, and then I, I had, a, I had a, an encounter one time at the QB Point uh, officers club. This is in the Philippines. I was down there. I was flying a plane out of there and I went to the, I remember I went out by the swimming pool and there was a friend of mine that I had known for some time. And I knew he was in a, in a, in an A4 squadron. This is a, 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 a small plane. That's the same kind of plane that John McCain flew an A4 and they were bombers. They did bombing. And I saw him by the pool and, uh, uh, there's more to this story, but I'll cut it to the chase. I asked him, I said, Oh, you hear a little R and R, and he said, "No, he said I'm headed back to the states." I said, "Really? What, what's?" He said, "He said, and he said, look, he said I was out on a bombing mission. We couldn't get on target. We came back, 
And uh, my flight leader said, hey, is that village down there? We'll get rid of our ordinance. I said, we just dropped these bombs and stuff and, on innocent people. And he said, it had been going on for some time. He said, finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I went to my commanding officer and I said, I'm not, I'm not dropping any more bombs. He said, I'll fly reconnaissance, I'll fly something else, but I'm not dropping any more bombs. His commanding officer put him on the next cod, as we call it, off the carrier to Kuby Point and back to the States in about 24 hours. You know, and when, he, when that happened to me, I got to thinking, you know, I know there's got to be a lot more people feel like that, but they're doing their job. Mm-hmm. They don't want to ruin their careers and that kind of thing, but he did. He later became a pilot for United Airlines. Is that right? <laughs> you, uh, you, you had quite a bit to do with uh, exposing uh, some of the um, some of the egregious things that were going on in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, after you left the service, after I left the service, you went to Washington. You became an aide to Congressman Neil Smith. Mm-hmm. You were part of a group that went to Vietnam. And what did you find? Well, David, you're talking about the uncovering of the tiger cages, as they were colloquially known. Mm-hmm. Uh, Describe what they are. These were prison cells built by the French on an island, uh, just like Devil's Island off of South America. They built these prisons on Kansan Island, and, um, and they called them tiger cages because they're like tiger pits. I don't know where they got that number, but it's not a cell that you look into. It's the one you look down on. So people are down below these grates, and the cells were about 14 feet by maybe 8 feet, and then down from the bars down maybe, I don't know, 15 feet, something like that. And um, there have been a lot of stories about these tiger cages. And some congressional committees had gone over there to look for them before, and but the Vietnamese no, government— No one found them. They said, no, they don't exist. It's just communist propaganda. These were our allies, the South Vietnamese. Our allies, yes. And, um, and in fact, both John Conyers and uh, Congressman Conyers— Still in Congress. Still in Congress. And Father Drynan, Bob Drynan, Congressman— Catholic priest. A Catholic priest. Went over there uh, a year before I did and were ostensibly to find these, and they were told they don't exist. And they even took them out to Kansan Island. said, you can look wherever you want. There's no tiger cases. There's nothing like that out here. So they came back empty-handed— and uh, a year later, I went over and uncovered them. There they were. And photographed them. And photographed them with my camera and my film. They were published in Life magazine, and then they just went all around. You the quit your job in order, to, uh, in order to expose this. Well, they say they fired me, David. I don't know who. Well, I don't know which in, came first. In any first. case, <laughs> your paycheck stopped coming well, for one reason well, or another. I say I quit. And they say they fired me before I quit, so I don't know. But I got, I got and, fired. And, and I the got commentary fired. that went along with the, the photos was condemnatory of the Congress for not yeah. being as aggressive as yeah. it should have been yeah. on this, yeah. um, including, I, I guess by implication, even the congressman you worked for. Yes. How difficult was that? You ended up working side by side with him as a member of Congress, right? Neil Smith? Yeah, I got elected from Iowa. Mm-hmm. It's the first time he ever spoke to me. Since that time, and we got to be friends later on, and we got we got an understanding of that. Was and it hard to implicate him? Even it, it even. was because, all in all, I liked the guy, and he was a good congressman. And uh, but he was just closed on his mind on this Vietnam War. Of course, he'd been a World War II vet, 
and a Purple Heart veteran and everything, and he just fell into this support the war and support Johnson and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think later on, and Neil is still alive. I think he's 90-some years old now. I think later on he— Iowans, know, Iowans, hearty, hearty soul. They're hearty. I think he realized later he that that Vietnam was a big mistake. But you're right. I, I, I got fired from my job and, uh, in fact, was told—I wasn't told— Another congressman who wanted to hire me was told, no, you can't hire him because Harkin will never work again in the U.S. Congress. Yeah. Well, I guess you found a way back in, huh? You know who that was? No. Wayne Hayes from Ohio. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He ran into his own problems later, He ran later, into huh? his own problems. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That was Wayne Hayes. Vic, uh, he was part of a, a scandal of a different— But these different tiger cages were just—it was a, a real—and that was a turning point in my life, too. Uh, that's when I really made the decision that after all that, I said, I, I can't, the, the way Congress is operating, the way they're blinded by this war, and that's when I first started thinking really seriously about running for Congress. You got elected in the Watergate year in, in a very difficult district. Very tough district. So yeah. let me ask you this question. I had Abner Mikva, who was a colleague of yours in the House, on this uh, on this podcast a few weeks ago. Oh and delightful. Oh, I love Ab. D- delightful oh. time. Oh, but um, he was very, very wistful about uh, the uh, the the time he spent there. And he said, "Look, even we could fight vigorously with guys across the aisle, gals and guys across the aisle, but." At the end of the day, we were friends. We respected each other, and uh, he told some poignant stories about that. Uh, how has Congress changed uh, mm-hmm. over the 40 years since you arrived there in 1974? Well, first of all, let me say this about Abner Mikva. If Jimmy Carter had been reelected president, he would have been on the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Without any doubt, in anybody's mind. So, And Merrick Garland, who uh, Barack Obama has appointed, President Obama has appointed— you know, he started his career as uh, Abner Mikva's press secretary when he was 19 years old, when Mikva was running for Congress, and I, then uh, succeeded Mikva as chief of the U.S. District Court District in Washington. Court. I so, did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So they're, huh. they go way back together. No, Abner Mikva was a great guy. He was, is a great guy. He is a great guy. Just wonderful. Love Abner Mikva. Um, but what has changed? But what's changed is just what you said, the camaraderie. And here's the way I put it a lot of times. I've thought a lot about this, David. Uh, in those days, you had a Republican Party that had conservatives, moderates, and liberals. You had a Democratic Party that had conservatives, mostly from the South, and moderates and liberals. And in that blend, you could get things done. Today, the Republican Party has cleaned out all of them. There are no liberals at, at all in the in the Congress uh, as a Republican. Maybe a few moderates, but it's all gone severely right. I mean, you think about some of the senators that were there when I came. I mean, the, the Chuck Percy's, the, 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 the Mac Mathias, uh, uh, even later uh, uh, Jack Danforth, uh, uh, Dave Durenberger, uh, 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 I mean, well, you've mentioned Hatfield as well. Hatfield. Oh, right. my, one of my idols, Hatfield. Yeah. My gosh, Mark Hatfield. They're gone, and they're replaced by hard right people. And it's make it, made it very difficult to get things done. I always say you know, that in the past— You've re- lost a bunch of—we uh, should say, in yeah. fairness, a bunch of conservative Democrats have 
fallen by the wayside as well, a lot of those Southern Democrats couldn't get reelected as the, as the, as the regions became more partisan. Well, what we lost is we lost a lot of conservative Southern Democrats who became Southern conservative Republicans. That's where they are now. All those seats down there, those used to be Democrats. Although in the last uh, election, you know, you lost the Mary Landrews and that's right. and uh, that's six right. of them actually red state yeah. uh, Democrats. Yeah. So yeah. Well, um, we we've been losing them uh, a lot down. In so the both South. sides have yeah. lost sort of moderating influences. That's exactly right. But it's also a matter of uh, it's not just a matter of ideology, but just uh, basic. Uh, uh, respect for each other, and uh, I mean, it, it seems as if the uh, collegiality that uh, you knew when you arrived yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Well, it's become hard-edged. I think social media has a lot to do with that. Uh, the amount of money that we have to raise in campaigns now, and and uh, you know, people sleeping in their office because they're only there three days a week. And uh, no, we used to be there a lot, and we would. Did you have your family in in uh, Washington? Well, uh, for the first uh, four years, no. Uh, Ruth, my wife, stayed mm-hmm. in Iowa, but after four years, we now are parents, and so then Ruth moved. So to you Washington. raised your kids in Washington, basically. I did, yes, I and that. and so did a bunch of other senators. So yes. you would commune as parents. Yes, and, yes, that's right. Yeah, that that's less common now. I mean, my kids went to school with uh, with. The daughters of things like Pat Roberts and uh, and um, and conservative uh, senator from Kansas, from Kansas mm-hmm. and uh, oh Idaho, uh, uh, Steve Sims mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Tim Johnson. I mean, Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. We all went, we all went to the same public school. Yeah, we yeah. go to school plays together and all that kind of stuff. We, they don't do that anymore. You have a body of work that is, is is really substantial. One you're known best for is as the sponsor of the Americans uh, with Disabilities Act. Uh, talk a little bit about what drew you to that and uh, and 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 what it, what it does. Well, what drew me to that was I grew up with a brother who was deaf, and I saw how he'd been discriminated against in so many. He ways. wasn't deaf from birth, right? He, no, he became deaf when he was about five or six years old, spinal meningitis, uh, and he became deaf. So he, I think all his life he kind of re, he had some memory of speech, mm-hmm. but most people couldn't understand him. I could understand him, but most people couldn't understand. You also him. learned how to sign, right? I learned how to sign. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm gonna. In fact, when this podcast is done, I'm gonna teach you a sign. Okay. My right. daughter, my daughter, and I want to talk to you about her uh, in a second. Yes. Uh, lives in a community uh, of, of people with disabilities and learned how to sign to talk to some of her uh, some of her roommates. And wow. so, so she is a signer now. Wow! Uh, yeah, but that's anyway, impressive. T- that's impressive. Yes. Okay. Well, so Frank, and then that's my brother, and um, I just saw this. I and, and that I, he he was the victim of discrimination. Oh yeah, in a lot of schooling and jobs and just everything. And just you know, just as I said, a lot of times when people found out he was deaf, they just like he just disappeared. They wouldn't deal with him. He was like disappeared. Um, and he's the one that told me one time he was sent to the Iowa School for the Deaf and Dumb. And he's the one that told me once he said, "I may be deaf, but I'm not dumb." Mm-hmm. And he said he said something else to me once later on uh, about the time he was getting driving, getting a car. He said, uh, they tell me I can't do this. He said, the only thing I know I can't do is here. He said, there may be other things I can't do, but I don't know that I can't do them. 
That's really interesting. The only thing I know I can't do is here. Mm-hmm. So that was Frank. And then I uh, then uh, in the late 70s, my nephew Kelly, my sister's boy, entered the Navy. I felt something about Anyway, he entered the Navy. He was on the USS Midway, an aircraft carrier, an enlisted guy working on the deck. And he was crawling under a jet plane, and the pilot, in, in contravention of what he was supposed to, ran his engine up to 100%. And Kelly got sucked down the jet intake. Mm. He had a hard hat on, but it broke his neck, and he became severely paraplegic. And uh, and so he came back, went through VA, got rehabilitated, went to college. And I'll never forget, he called me up. Uncle Tom, can you help me? Well, what is it, Kelly? And he says, well, he says, I'm going to he's at Fort Collins, Colorado, Colorado State. And they had this class up on the second floor that I want to take, but there's no elevator. And I'm in my wheelchair, and um, and um, and they won't move the class. Can you do something about it? I thought, well, they got a class on the second floor. He can't get to it. And then I went out and visited him, and I was visiting. And then, then all of a sudden, I became acutely aware of of mo- mobile mobility disability. Now, Frank was mobile. My brother was mobile. Mm-hmm. He could do anything, drive a car and everything. But here was Kelly. Couldn't even go to the grocery store. Couldn't get over a curb. Couldn't go in a building. Couldn't take a class because it was on the second floor. And I thought, boy, now my my vision of disability expanded. And it was shortly after that, in the mid-'80s, about the time I was running for the Senate, I met Danny Piper, a young man with Down syndrome. And, you know, when I was growing up, you made fun of people like that. He had Down syndrome, and his, I knew his mother and father, and he was in Ankeny High School, and they took me in. First time I ever met him, he was acting in a play. He was actually in a school play. He was manager of the football team, you know, took care of the helmets and all that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, my vision of disability expanded a little bit further. People with intellectual disabilities. So that's about the time when I became very acutely aware of this national movement to have a broad civil rights bill that covered all disabilities in America. And that's what I got involved in. That's how I got involved in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you passed a law that is monumental in its impact in terms of the kinds of uh, yeah. uh, it, barriers that it's knocked down for yeah. people with disabilities, for which anybody who uh, has friends or relations who have struggled with some of these barriers is deeply grateful. You've touched a lot of lives with that. This is the thing I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I My... My daughter uh, has intellectual disability. She started having seizures when she was seven months old, and her developing brain uh, took a lot of damage. She did, these seizures went on for 18 years, unabated, uh, more or less, and lots of medication. So she, she's damaged. Uh, she's going to turn 35 in June. She probably functions as an early adolescent. Hmm. Uh, and we did, we wanted to. Uh, we wanted to mainstream her, get her into schools that were, and we did. Good. And we moved in order to do that. And here's what we discovered. As she, she grew at a different pace and to a different place than these young women. And at first it was great when she was young. As she got older, she became profoundly lonely when these these particularly these girls, but girls and boys, started thinking about other things, mostly each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't, she had no way to relate to that at all, and she became subject to a lot of uh, teasing and, and, and a lot of isolation. 
even though wonderful staff, teachers worked hard, they adapted her program and so on. And she ended up gravitating to uh, her own social set, which were other people who had intellectual disabilities. And she developed friends uh, among those uh, people. I I raise that because um, Hmm. Hmm. uh, my feeling is people who don't struggle with disabilities have a variety of habits, interests, uh, emotional levels, and so on. And we, wouldn't, we don't prescribe for them what, who they should associate with, how they should live. But there seems to be this kind of, um, in order to, because there's been all this discrimination and such uh, this notion of shoving people into places and forgetting about them, there seem, there's, there's, there's lack of sensitivity to the fact that maybe pe- sometimes people with disabilities want to be with other people <laughs> with disabilities. Maybe they don't necessarily want to be in the situation that my daughter found herself in. So how do we create a nuanced approach to this so that people with disabilities have a wide array of choices mm-hmm. and uh, you know, not simply the choices that well-meaning people in the disabilities rights community prescribe for them. Well, you put your finger on, uh, on a, 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 a complex issue, but one that does have a solution and one that we've tried to, to address over the years uh, since the ADA, and that is this. And you, put, you, you said choices. Uh, we've got to start working, and, and, I, and I try to do this in a bill that I passed right before I left the Senate. When a, a child has an IEP, Yes. You had an IEP. Yes, for your still do. She, she, yeah. she still gets, she has yearly yeah. reviews. Of course. Yes. Individual education yeah. plan. Yeah. So when you get those, then you, you should start working with them to find out uh, what they want to do. What do they want to do, first of all? Now, maybe what they want to do is uh, not possible. Well, they should find that out. Mm-hmm. Why protect them? Let Kids with disabilities, especially intellectual disabilities, mm-hmm. let them try something. Mm-hmm. And they'll find out, well, maybe they can't do that. Well, then they'll come back. Well, maybe they want to try something else. Pretty soon they'll start to find out what their level is and where, where they know they feel comfortable right. and what they can do. This is not rocket science. But right. here's the glitch. Kids in high school today get summer jobs. They get internships. They get all this stuff. Kids with disabilities never get that. So we got to start, and that's what my legislation is, is to do more in making sure if you have an IEP, you have job coaching, job shadowing, summer internships. So that maybe one summer you go here and you start something, you don't like it, you can't do it. Okay, well, we'll do something else. So that by the time they finish school or whatever, move on, um, we've got a, they've got a better idea of what they want to do and what they're capable of doing, just like anybody else, David. Yeah. It just frustrates me that when they say, well, they said to me, well, when I was having hearings on this, somebody said, well, you know, Senator Harkin, you're setting these kids up for failure. You're setting them up for failure. And I said, so what's wrong with that? You know, yeah. that's, a, that's a part of life. Right. You know, kids have to know that they fail at this or fail at that. So why? See, I've always been against this whole protective cloak we put over 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 kids right. with disabilities. Right. Yeah. No, well, one. I'll tell you something though. One of the things that you learn 
when you have um, children who have the struggles that my child has, and I know I speak for millions of, yeah. uh, uh, of Americans, is that um, you want them to, to, you want them to be stimulated, you want them to have um, uh, the social life that they want, you want them to feel every day is fulfilled, but you come to grips with the fact that your vision of what that fulfillment is may be different than their their vision. That's exactly right. And we shouldn't necessarily impose. I learned at an early age, you know, that maybe her life wasn't going to be what my wife and I dreamed it would be, but we wanted it to be happy and fulfilled every day. That's it. And uh, so I think that's it. I just counsel that we should listen more closely uh, to the to the to the affected people themselves yes, right. and not uh, make decisions for them uh, in, in well-intended decisions, but decisions that may actually isolate them more. Oh, so I, I just can't tell you how true that is. And I've, for all these years, I've worked with kids with disabilities, especially intellectual disabilities. And I, I understand that I never had a child with an intellectual disability, just a lot of friends and relatives. But, but I can understand as a parent that you you want to really protect them. You want to love them, and you don't want any harm to come to them. And, you know, I, 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 I understand. Mostly I just want them to be happy. Yeah, but like you say, your idea of what's happy and what theirs is right. aren't quite the same. Exactly. Aren't quite the same. But the other thing is that, you know, what I keep saying is you want to the maximum extent possible, you want a young person with a disability, physical or, or intellectual or both, uh, to – to advance as far as he or she can possibly do to be independent so that parents don't have to worry that when they're gone, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, child? no, I think it's a big concern. I think it's a yeah. big concern. My yeah. daughter lives, as I said, in a community highly regarded here, uh, run actually by the Catholic Church and by a nun. I was thinking <laughs> about that when you told me about the nuns taking care of your. Yeah. But she's active. She's engaged. She's doing things all the time. She's become far more independent. She lives in an apartment with other women. She uh-huh. goes out into the community shopping and doing things. Uh, but uh, there are those, what? honestly, there are those probably allies of yours on the ADA who would close the place down because it's not a, it's not a home in the community of, uh, you know, this is, it's large ergo, the sense, sense is that it's failing uh, these kids. And I, I think we, you know, this is what I mean by some, some people will function better in a home in the community. Some people fun- function better in a more socialized kind of uh, environment. The question is whether it's quality and whether people with disabilities are going to have the same array of choices as, as others. <laughs> but I, sh- I shouldn't belabor. I'm taking no, advantage no, but of this your is, this presence is, here. This is obviously of great interest to me, and I like what I hear from you because you get it. You get it. Too many people don't understand that. But let me talk to you about another aspect of your your congressional career. That's that's one that probably, if you had back, you'd like to, which is the vote on the Iraq War. You 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 voted for the authorization for the use of military force in two thousand and two. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you vote for it? And and you know, it's because of your history was such that you would be expected to be a great skeptic. <laughs> You know, there were two Iraq wars. Yes. In fact, I led the opposition to the first one in 1991. I, and there's a whole story about George Mitchell, our majority leader, yelling at me so loudly that my, on the first day of, of the, I'd just gotten re I'd just gotten reelected, and I stopped 
the Senate floor and Mitchell until we could have a vote on the first Iraq war. Paul Wellstone was with me on that. And uh, so that was that. That was that first Iraq war. Now, the second one you're talking about, uh, why did I vote? Well, sometimes I, I wish I could take it back. I really do. But what, what, here's what was, here's why, and there's, I have a speech in the record that you can read, what I said at the time. You were, run, you were up for re-election at the time, too, probably 2002. Was this, this 2001 or 2000? This is 2002. When okay, this was so October yeah, I was, I'm up in 2002. Yeah, so that must have created some pressure as well. I don't, I don't really realize that it's that much of a pressure. Uh, I was, well, maybe. But in I any case. Think back, I have to think back. Probably, probably was some. But... Look, I was really in favor of the U.N. inspectors. Hmm? Now, you got to remember what happened. Bush sent these U.N. He, he sent these, uh, not U.N., our inspectors under the guise of the U.N. to go in. It was our inspectors, not U.N., our, U.S., to go into Iraq. And, and he was pointing. His things from the White House as well, he wanted this authorization mm-hmm. not to go to war. But to force Iraq to accept the inspection. To make sure that we had the strongest hand possible to make sure those inspectors could do their job. David, you go back and read that's exactly what he said. Did you believe that Iran had, uh, Iraq had uh, weapons of mass destruction? No, I didn't even believe it then. Did not even believe it then. But what I believed was the more that we can get inspectors, and in fact, the French had a French had an interesting suggestion at the time. There was never a number limited on how many inspectors we could have there. The French suggested, in lieu of the war, send in two or 300 inspectors because there was no limit mm-hmm. under the agreement that we had. But so I bought it. I thought Bush and some of the people I talked to in the administration, the Secretary of State and others, were very convincing did Not you th- think there was a uh, 9-11 link, uh, which was the other argument? No, I never believed that either. Mm-hmm. None of them were Iraqis. These were all Saudis. So here was my position. I said, look, if this is going to mean that we keep our inspectors there, and that's what I said in my speech, then I'm all for it. And they've told me this is not an authorization to go to war. I think that vote was held in— It was at late October. In late October, early November. Mm-hmm. In December, it was just shortly after the election, Bush withdrew all of the inspectors, unilaterally withdrew the inspectors. That's when I knew I'd been lied to. He had no reason to withdraw the inspectors. He could have sent more inspectors in there, and he just single-handedly withdrew them all, and that's when I knew that they were headed towards war. So you've worked closely with uh, both uh, Bernie Sanders and and Hillary Clinton. Um, Bernie Sanders has been flaying uh, Hillary Clinton over this very vote that we were talking about, the the Iraq Iraq vote. And he said that it's disqualifying because it showed uh, poor judgment. Um, (laughs) It seems to me, you as someone who's probably voted more often with Bernie Sanders than almost anybody else on the Senate floor, how do you react to that? Well, he's wrong. I mean, look, maybe that's me talking about myself because I voted for that resolution. And as I've said, I've said many times since then, it's one of the worst votes I ever cast. I just, I wish I could take it back, but I know what I was thinking at the time. And I looked, went back and read my speech. I said, yeah, that, I just felt 
that they, this was just, and I felt there was a lot of politics in that vote. I felt that Bush and them were putting it up, now that I remember, before the election to scare a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, that's just political stuff. That's just politics. They're going to do, they're going to keep those, those inspectors going. I so never thought, that, being- I, ne- I just never thought they'd, you so, so for Bernie to say that that is a lack of judgment, well, yeah, we all lack judgment once in a while. Maybe I maybe I didn't discern that Bush was lying and and they were all lying about this. Well, is that a lack of judgment? Sure, maybe it is. But is that a reason? Is that one thing a disqualifier? I don't think so. I yeah. Think well, so. he's 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 developed a list over the course of the campaign. One of them is about campaign money and that uh, you know uh, Hillary uh, uh, accusing her of being too close to Wall Street. You know what I'll bet, David? I'll bet someone could take my long record, and I've got a, a very— I think they did it every six years, actually. <laughs> right, but, I mean, you could take bits and pieces and say, boy, that Harkin's conservative. Man, that Harkin is voting for war and all that. Take bits and pieces of anything and show that, of course. But you look at the long trend, uh, I'll match my liberal record against Bernie Sanders any day of the week, overall. How do you read the situation now? You guys had a very you you support Hillary Clinton in Iowa. Yes. It was a very very tough race very for tough. that caucus. She very won uh, narrowly, but you saw right at the beginning the scope of uh, and range of Bernie's potential support, and probably a bunch of them are people who had been supporting you in the past. Uh, some of your sure. liberal uh, allies. Sure. Uh, how does this whole thing come back together now? Uh, given the things that have been said and the fact that as we sit here today before the California primary, he is still uh, uh, raising a number of the issues that we've uh, talked about here and has suggested that the the process itself has been uh, unfair to him. Well, underdogs always say that, I guess. Uh, The situation is unfair. Um, I don't think it was unfair. Those rules have been in place for he, he, he. Those rules were in place when he started. It hasn't changed since he started. So he knew the field, the playing field, when he got in. Um, so anybody can argue are, that. Are you I, worried that he's torquing up uh, I, I, people to the point where it's going to be hard to to put this thing back together? I mean, if you say I, the system's I, it, it, un, yeah, if you yeah, say the system yeah, has been unfair, yeah. and that your uh, opponent is corrupted by money and has poor judgment. Uh, is it? How do you put that back together? I think maybe worse things have been said by opponents in other elections, <laughs> and, and they've come around to support the candidate. Uh, look, I, I think in the heat of the campaign and stuff, a lot of things like that are said. Um, I, 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 I have every reason to believe that uh, when Hillary finally gets the delegates, and she is going to get, there's no way that Bernie can get them now, and he knows that it's it's over with that in terms of his being the candidate, that he will then begin to negotiate for the platform and policies in the platform, and they'll begin to work that out. Uh, I'm I'm predicting and I'm hoping anyway that at the convention he'll give a good stemwinder speech like he always does about inequality. You, you and, served on some committees with him, so you've I, heard a lot of them. Probably. Oh, I, I've heard them. I've I've, I've I've heard this speech years ago, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But, but I'm hopeful that he'll do what Hillary Clinton did in 2008. Call upon his supporters and say, look, we fought this fight. We've got this great platform now. 
and now let's get together and back Hillary Clinton, and I'm going to do everything I can to elect her as president of the United States. You know, but what you hear from a lot of his young supporters is that this is traditionally how politics works, and that's why, you know, we don't have single-payer health care. That's why we, we, we haven't taken the big steps we need on climate change, because we settle for incremental progress. I mean, that's the that's the critique. It's not just the critique of her, but of the guy I work for, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, I disagree with it. But it seems to be the argument that is laying out here that uh, we need, you know, as, as Bernie says, a revolution and not an, not an evolution. Hmm. Well, I'm what, asking you this as, a, as an old progressive war horse here, how you <laughs> process all that. How I process it? Look, here's how I process it. When I first ran for Congress in 1974, huge turnout of young people. In, in my district when mm-hmm. I got elected. Huge. At the college campuses, you couldn't keep them away from the polls. About two years later and four years later, they were gone. Young people just drifted away. Uh, once we ended the draft and the Vietnam War went down, wound down, they, 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 they didn't get involved. So what I'm saying to young people is don't just get involved for one or two months or just one campaign. If, if you feel that strongly, you better stand for the next campaign, too, and the next election, and your local elections, because they have a lot to do with who's elected up on top. But you can't— so But they're I, doing it. They're, that, there's a bunch of them out there for Bernie. They're out there for Bernie. But will they stay in, and will they continue to work for those progressive causes on the local level, on the state level, and in the next election? What about Hillary? Will they work for Hillary? My God, I sure hope so. I what mean, is the I, resistance I hope so. You, I hope you, so. You've worked with her. Yeah. Explain to me the resistance that you ran into when you were out there um, uh, trying to promote her candidacy. You're a persuasive guy. Well, you know, I, I, first of all, I had a lot of young people tell me, well, I remember one meeting in Des Moines, well, how come she's so untrustworthy? I said, what do you mean she's untrustworthy? Yeah, she's untrustworthy and this and that. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. How old are you? 20, 21 years old. It's fine. I said, for all of your life, all you've heard is how bad Hillary Clinton is. The right wing and the conservatives, because they knew that after Bill Clinton, she's coming along. And as much as they can damage her over those years. So you've heard continually on her, beaten up and beaten up. And I said this at, at the time in Iowa. I said, I've served with Hillary Clinton. I've known her since 1992. And who is she? I, can you say? I mean, yeah. tell 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 folks like I'm interested in your impression of her as a colleague and as a public official. I think first of all, she's uh, as as people say, she's very smart, and she's a very hard worker. When she came to the Senate and was on our committee, and which I later became chairman, I wasn't chairman then. She was. She knew how to work with people and work with Republicans and get things. We got stuff done, and I saw her working with people like Lindsey Graham and others, and and, and I thought she knows how to move the ball forward, how to how to how to how to move keep moving that ball forward. Secondly, I think there's a side of Hillary that a lot of people don't know. You know this little house that I told you I born raised mm-hmm. in income. I still live there. I live in the house in which I was born. Not too many people can say that. It's still a small house. Only has but thousand square feet well, she wanted to have dinner a year ago or so and i won't be sure 
first started out just with a few friends. So they asked if they could have dinner at my house. I said, I got this little teeny place. I don't, I can't put people in. She said, well, I only wanted 10 or 12 people. So we ordered out some fried chicken from the local grocery store and this and that and had some drinks. And she came in without anybody else. And so we had a little meal of drinks and just friends and, 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 uh, some of my neighbors came around. They didn't know what was going on. You see all the black cars there and all that kind of stuff. And a couple of my neighbors came over, and I have a little front porch. And I saw them out on the on the street. We would just have one little street there. And so I got them up, and I brought Hillary out to meet these people. And, oh, my gosh, it was wonderful. And I said, really, I said, Hillary, you might think they came to see you. Actually, they're here because in that tree over there, there are two baby owls. And they're watching these little baby owls, and they'll look down, and, and Hillary says, can I see that? So I took her by the hand, I took her down just a little ways, and there's this little low-hanging branch in a pine tree, and there's two little baby owls looking out. And she just got really wistful and said, you know, this is really kind of what, this is kind of what it's all about, isn't it? Just neighbors and being nice to one another and just being friendly. It was, it was a moment when I thought, she, this is the real Hillary Clinton. It just. Why does she have such a hard time? She's a caring, wonderful that? person. Uh, I hear you. Why does she have such a hard time uh, conveying that? Do you think? Look, I, I, I'm the last person to try to psychoanalyze anyone, David. I don't know. Uh, I think why, 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 why? I think I don't know. Maybe, maybe something in her being. Maybe she just feel she can't let her, her her humanity and her her kindness or her, her sensitivities kind of come out i i'm just hopeful at some point in the campaign people see her as i see her as a not only as smart and honest and trustworthy that i've known this person but someone that has a really deep human side to her that a lot of people just don't see. You talked about her getting beaten up for 25 years. Do you think that was uh, one of the motivations for this decision to put her email, to handle her email privately? I never ask her about that email. I uh, just never have. Um, it, I, I did it come Bernie, up with I agree people with Bernie Sanders, much ado about nothing. Although it, it seems to be to voters. Did you hear about when you were moving around Iowa? or People brought it up, but I, it was... They didn't understand it. It was not that. Didn't seem that there was anything. Now I noticed as we make this podcast mm-hmm. that the uh, Inspector General uh, IG, the mm-hmm. uh, Inspector General, of the Department of State has said that no laws were broken, no laws were broken, but that she didn't follow proper mm-hmm. uh, State Department procedure. Not helpful. Not helpful. Not helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I understand it, as we sit here making this podcast, and I don't know, I haven't delved into mm-hmm. it too much, but that the Colin Powell had a private server. Well, he had, he didn't use his, he, it, it's a little different. He, he didn't, he used a private email address. He didn't have his own server, I don't think. In his house, but he used mm-hmm. a private email address. What the heck's the difference? I mean. Well, it's I security, mean, I guess. Okay. So he used that. But then. After he left, sometimes they changed the rules. Mm-hmm. And I can see maybe someone coming in, Hillary, and you got your staff there, and they look and, well, Colin Powell had his. We can have ours. And not really looking at what the new rules. The rules had been changed, by the way. What's your impression of her opponent uh, in the general election, uh, assuming she's the nominee, which I do, uh, Donald Trump? Uh, well, 
What do I think about Donald Trump? I think here's uh, the latest reincarnation of P.T. Barnum. Uh, this guy is, uh, I think he's uh, an inveterate liar, for example. I think he lies about his wealth. He changes his position from one day to the next. He is uh, a personality. It's like someone said, why is he a personality? And someone said, well, because he's in the news all the time. He's on TV. He's on the news all the time. Why is he in the news and on TV all the time? Because he's a personality. <laughs> you get that circular reasoning. But that's what people— Can he win? No. No, 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 no. Donald Trump cannot win the presidency of the United States. I mean, he can be a personality and bravado and, and uh, people can laugh and they know who he is. and They know, they know what he is. He's, he's, they know— his apprentice program and he's bigger than life and his plane and all that kind of stuff, but they don't know who he is. And between now and November, the electorate's going to find out who he is. And so no chance. And that'll be, no, it, there's no chance. Uh, it's just it, it, people from now on, people are going to vote for their future. Keep in mind, he only won. I, I just checked it with Jeff Greenfield between 40 and 45% of the Republican vote. That's the Republican vote. What about all the independents out there and moderate Democrats? As you know, David, after the last election, Republican Party had this big get-together and decided what they needed to do for the next election was, was, was a target young people, women, and Hispanics. And that's Donald Trump? So, I mean, he, he, no. He's, and here's what I predict is going to happen. I think the news media also feels some kind of a burden or they feel that maybe they they gave him too much of a free ride they gave him too much publicity just for who he is and his bravado and all that i think that the news media now is going to say now we got to start talking about what he is what does he really stand for and and pointing those things out and once they do that i think donald trump will start kicking back and he'll start just as he's wont to do no matter what He'll fight back. He'll punch back. And pretty soon, the American people is going to see him for what he is. Not a big person, but a very small person. Let me just finish by asking you about your 40 years. In your 40 years, you talk about him being a small person. Who's the biggest person? Who is the most impressive person that you got to serve with in your 40 years in Congress? Who do you look back at with, with, with admiration and affection and and who who represented the ideal for you of what a public okay you don't mean be. just president no any, no not any, at all any, yeah. any, yeah. mostly your colleagues mostly my colleagues well i gotta tell you i love tip o'neill i just to me he was he was a great politician he knew how to take care of his people but he knew how to push progressive issues uh and he was just he was just a wonderful guy. I'll tell you a story about him sometime. I don't have time on this podcast uh, about how he saved me one time. Um, but Tip O'Neill, um, uh, gosh, uh, uh, I think of uh, I think of Henry Royce. No, 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 even from knows, Wisconsin. Doesn't even know know who he is. He right. was, uh, loved Henry Royce. He was very good. Why? Yeah. Um, he was serious and a serious legislator, and he was a great. 
progressive in that wonderful Wisconsin tradition uh, mm-hmm. that Royce. And he was one of the point people on going after big banks and uh, and Wall Street. And this is back in the seventies, for crying out loud. Uh, so I liked I liked him a lot. Looked up to him um, uh, in the Senate. Uh, I've got to say that the best legislator I think I ever served with in the Senate was Ted Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Best, and we had a lot of fights, by the way. But he was the best legislator, and, and terms of getting something done, getting it, getting it through. He was also um, gregarious, and uh, and uh, and 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 also he was willing to give his committee people a lot of a lot of leeway to do things, um, like the ADA. Like the ADA, of course, uh, he could have taken that. Uh, of course, you know, my closest friend I ever had at all in all those years was Paul Wellstone. Mm-hmm. He and I formed a bond that predated his being in, in the Senate, by the way, uh, back in the 80s. And uh, I just loved loved Paul Wellstone. He, there was never never anyone like him Uh since and I tell you, the other one I, I told you before, maybe you heard me say this. One of my idols was always Mark Hatfield. Mm-hmm. He was Republican a, from Oregon. Republican from Oregon, a gentleman to the core, considerate. Um, su- uh, some things we we didn't agree on politically. I understand that, but 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 he was just always willing to work with you in advanced causes, especially on health care and and medical research, and he was just. Just the kindest, nicest, one of the nicest persons I ever served with. Well, I'm sure that there are people who would answer that question by saying, I loved working with Tom Harkin, and you right. left a great uh, impact right. in 40 years in the United States Congress and Senate. I hope so. And we're grateful that you spent time with us, not just here, but at the Institute of Politics, uh, trying to influence the next generation of leaders. Well, thanks, Tom Harkin, for, what, thanks you. for what you're doing, getting these young people. Teed up up and ready to go. Thanks. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.